This episode is brought to you in part by Max BMW Motorcycles, serving adventure riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories available online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can sign up for their e-rider newsletter too. It's free. That's maxbmw.com. And Best Rest Products, home of Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire and Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. You know, whether you're on the road or off the road, you'll need a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system and will inflate a flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA, and get this, it comes with a lifetime warranty. It's the pump we use here at Adventure Rider Radio. Visit them at CyclePump.com. That's CyclePump.com. If you Google your make and model of motorcycle with the words broken subframe, you may be, well, astonished at the results. It could be pages, depending on the model, of people who've had problems with the subframe. Now, the question is, is the subframe weak and inherently inadequate for our use, or are we overloading it? And how do we know how much load we can put onto the subframe of our bike? Well, all that and more coming up on today's episode of Adventure Rider Radio. We're also going to have a look at the Darien jacket from Aerostitch and the AD1 pants. I'm Jim Martin. Stay with us. we got a good one for you. Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles, tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding. Green Chili Adventure Gear is also the exclusive USA distributor for Outback Motortech, a Canadian company that specializes in high-quality protection for motorcycles. Visit them at www.greenchiliadv.com, greenchiliadv.com. Hi, I'm Sam Manicum. Rick Sanders. Terry Borden. Sandy Borden. Jack Borden. Brian Phil. Dustin Vince. Jason Spafford. Lisa Murray. Dave Peterson. Rachel. Ed Mark. Glenn Hickstead. Woody from Woody's Real World. Vanna Smith. Greg and Trey. Dave Barr. Michelle Lampert. Tiffany Coates. Trevor Chance. Red Tags. Zoe Cannell. Nathan Noel. Joe Rush. Joe Rush. Crystal Bayer-Lodge. Lauren Tarkin. Jeremy Craker. Simon Thomas. Simon Pivey. Grant Johnson. Susan Johnson. Larry Spice. Robert Wick. Spencer Conway. Sure. 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 It doesn't take an engineering degree or even an understanding of mechanics to realize that dump trucks, for instance, are built different than pickup trucks, and pickup trucks are built different than standard passenger cars. I mean, the image you have in your mind right now alone is enough to tell you that one is built to carry more weight than the other, working, of course, from the top of the dump truck on down to the passenger car. But when it comes to motorcycles... Looks can be deceiving because there's no obvious visual cues where there was comparing the dump truck to the pickup to the passenger car. So if we were to say, you know, let's start at what could be at least the well-known icon, deserved or not, and we don't want to argue that right now, but deserved or not, it's the well-known icon, the BMW R1200 GSA. Now, it may or may not be the best adventure bike on the market. That has nothing to do with it. But if you look at that one, it looks like it's the truck. It looks like it's the big bike. It's a very big image. And so let's begin there with just maybe just talking a bit about the, um, the weight capacity, et cetera, for the uh, R1200 GSA. And I have with us today to talk about this, Grant Johnson from Horizons Unlimited. Grant, welcome back. Thanks, Jim. It's good to be here again. Hi, everybody. 
So Grant, looking at the specs here, and the and one of the other reasons that I, I'm sort of turning to the BMWs because they're really good at marking or, or at putting their specs on their websites and in their material. They really do have it laid out. Unlike a lot of the other manufacturers, I mean, I looked up the the Kawasaki KLR650, and you know, great bike, but they just do not give details about their. They've got the the gross vehicle weight, but they don't give other details breaking it down, payload, wet and dry, and all that stuff. BMW does. So let's just use that as an example. So if you were to compare the R1200 GSA down to the next down bike, which you think would be smaller because of smaller engine size, the F800 GSA, you would automatically assume that the payload capacity would be higher on the 1200 than the 800. But that's not necessarily the case, is it? I mean, when we look at those, those uh, payload capacities, the R1200 GSA has a payload capacity of 485 pounds where the F800 GSA has a payload capacity of 496 pounds. And I probably should say that with kilograms as well. Again, the payload capacity for the R1200 GSA is 485 pounds or 220 kilograms. The payload capacity for the F800 GSA is 496 pounds or 225 kilograms, showing that the smaller bike has a higher payload capacity. So this gets pretty confusing, doesn't it? It's a problem that people run into. They always think that the big bike has the bigger capacity. But as you've noticed, definitely not necessarily true. Part of the problem is the bigger bike is total weight is considerably higher and you're still running on tires. And in the end, it comes down to what are the tires capable of for load? So when we're designing something or when someone is building something, really it's it's top to bottom that, that makes a difference in weight capacity. It's every component in the object, be it a dump truck or be it a motorcycle, that makes a difference. Is that correct? Absolutely. Then the basis that you start with is the tires and what is the capacity of the tires. And then you build into the suspension. How strong is the suspension? What are the spring rates? Are they set up for a light load or a big load? Are you planning on carrying a large amount of luggage? So the suspension has to be set right. And of course, the frame design all has to be set up appropriately to carry the load that the manufacturer envisions for the bike. Right. It'd be easy to look at any of the adventure bikes out there and say, well, the manufacturers just aren't designing them for being adventure bikes. But I don't know if that's really the case, because what we're talking about here is a motorcycle. It's still a motorcycle. And the the basics of the motorcycle say that you can only carry so much weight on it. They're they're not built as trucks. And if you if you had one that was built like a dump truck, nobody would buy it because A, it would be ugly. B, it would be super heavy to start with. And you couldn't get tires that would be satisfactory to hold the weight anyway. Nobody makes it good enough. Let's start off, Grant. Tell us or define what GVWR is. That's just the gross vehicle weight rating that the manufacturer has said. This is the maximum load that the entire bike, including it, fuel, water, whatever else, you, riders, passengers, everything. What's the maximum total weight that the bike is capable of carrying? And they derive that from a lot of testing, from working with the tire manufacturers to determine what the tires are capable of safely. And they designed the bike based on that GVWR for strength, for spring rates and all the rest of it. So one thing to keep in mind here, I guess, when we're talking, so that's the maximum weight. That's the, the weight of the bike, the fuel, the oil, the rider, all the gear. Yep. Driving down the highway, pull onto one of those way stations at the side, roll up and they'll laugh at you, but usually they'll be very good if they're not too busy and they'll weigh you and it can be a surprise. 
Well, it may be a surprise if they tell you you can't take your bike any further because you're grossly overloaded. <laughs> <laughs> but okay, so we need to we need to understand what our GVWR is. Where do we find it on a bike? Generally, it's on the sticker that's actually affixed to the bike. Okay, and it's normally on there, or it's in the manual. And the difficult portion is then figuring out. Okay, well, what does the bike weigh to begin with before I bolt everything on? Of course, advertising is a bit of a problem, too, because the manufacturers advertise a particular weight, but they neglect to mention that that's not including water in the battery and oil in the, in the oil tank and et cetera. So what's the real weight? And I'm, I'm sure that they've got the fuel tanks filled with helium so that the bike floats a little bit. <laughs> and um, they often refer to the real weight as curb weight or, or wet weight somewhere on there. But one of the, the, the oddest ones I find is the gas tank filled to 80%. Yeah. <laughs> Why fill it to the top? I mean, really? <laughs> it doesn't make any sense to me. Why give a weight at 80%? We know we're going to fill it up. So again, it's, it's like you said, it's advertising. You yep. don't want the bike to appear really heavy. No, everybody wants the lightest bike. I mean, you, you get a lot of people look at the specs. They say, what's, what can it carry? How, how much does the bike weigh? What's the maximum speed? And what's the maximum acceleration? What's its quarter mile time? And that's what they make their decision on. And for, for what we're doing for adventure travel, none of that's really relevant. It's what, how much can the bike carry? How big is the tank? Preferably bigger. And gee, that's about it. So when you're figuring out what you can carry, uh, I think a lot of the mark payload, and, and I started off talking about uh, the BMW and how it has the, um, all the specs for it. And I'm just using them as an example. I don't want anybody to get upset about, you know, they, well, they don't own a BMW or they don't like them or whatever. I'm using it as an example because they're so good at listing their specifications very clearly in their, all their brochures. And we were talking about, so figuring out how do you figure out what the weight of the vehicle is and what your capacity is? I guess what you're going to have to do is do a little bit of math here. Yeah, that's the easy way. But even then, you, I mean, you can take the published weight of the bike and if it's wet weight, okay, that's a good starting point and you can take your weight, but don't forget what your riding gear weighs. I don't know about you, but I pick up all my riding gear in a duffel bag to get onto the plane to go traveling. Wow, that bag's heavy. Mm -hmm. Helmet, riding gear, boots, all the rest of it. That's a lot of stuff. It really adds up. And then do the same for your passenger and it's surprising how quickly you use up your payload. Yeah, you have to add in your boots and everything. It's one thing you get on your bathroom scale in the morning, you weigh yourself and you, you, know, you come in 200 pounds, let's say, for instance. But by the time you're getting dressed, I don't, do you have an idea of what, what the, the gear on the average person weighs? Somewhere between 10 and 25 pounds. Yeah, that's what I would have said. You're wearing. Yeah, if, you, if you're wearing leathers, that's really heavy compared to uh, synthetic jackets and things. Yeah, I, I would have said up to 25 pounds is what I was thinking because uh, it, it does add up. And when we're talking about just a finite amount here, because it is a finite amount, things like you said will add up quickly. Everything that we put on the bike narrows that gap. And the other thing that I want to talk about was that although you can carry the maximum vehicle weight, that gross vehicle weight rating that it has, you can go up to the maximum. What does that do for us as we get close to that? It destroys our handling and it destroys our braking. The bike's going to be decelerating, your braking is going to be much, much worse than it was when it's just loaded up with just you and light, everything's light and no luggage. There's going to be a big difference in the braking time. And if you've got a passenger on the back, that's going to make it considerably worse because you have to deal with the passenger's motion as well. 
I was going to do a quick calculation here. Like, like so let's say you rode a KLR 650 and the curb weight um, is about 432 pounds. This is from specs that I've got off the internet in different places. The GVWR is 788 pounds and you don't have to worry about the numbers. I'll, I'll, I have the calculations here. That leaves a payload of 356 pounds. If the rider weighs in, let's say 210 pounds, and maybe that's with a little bit of clothing on, you've got your hard bags, et cetera, maybe weighing in at 30 pounds. Would that seem reasonable? Well, the general theoretical maximum weight is uh, 22 pounds per saddlebag for most bikes is what the spec that's given. Okay, so let's let's just say, uh, so that, that would be 22 pounds per bag. That's the maximum. Right. So not including the bag, not including the bag. Oh, I'm sorry. But the bag itself, in a way. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about just the weight of the bag. So if you're talking about the hard bags, just just your your hard boxes, they've got to weigh 30 pounds between the two of them. I'm not sure it's quite that much, but uh, 20 to 30 pounds, I would say. 20 to 30. If we throw in a a top box, then we're probably pushing 30 pounds. Mm-hmm. Okay. Fuel on the KLR is going to be about uh, 37 and a half pounds. And I've done all this in pounds, uh, but it's just an illustration. So it doesn't really matter what it is in, in kilograms. It's just the illustration of it. If we talk about clothes and stuff at another 25 pounds, you're talking, uh, what is that? 302 pounds, something like that already. And you really haven't got much on there. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I didn't take into account your, um, your brackets for your hard panniers. Um, I didn't even take into account the tank bag, any liquids you're going to carry with you, fuel, et cetera, et cetera. It adds up. It adds up very fast. Now throw a passenger on there and you've got a problem. And it definitely does. I was going to say, so you're at 302, you've got 356. You haven't had added in your, your liquids that you're going to carry with you or your lunch. And now you want to take a passenger on and yeah, and you're already over the GVWR. So it's an interesting thing to sit down and calculate it out and, and try and figure out what sort of capacity your bike really has and should you be carrying it? Because as you mentioned, the, the further you get up there, the worse the bike handles. So we want to try and keep it as light as possible. Yeah, always. You, you, can, you will never want that your bike to be heavier. You'll always want it to be lighter, lighter, lighter and less gear and less stuff. And, and that's, I mean, that's an argument against even a full tank. If you've got a giant fuel tank, don't fill it unless you need it. The same could be said with panniers, couldn't it? I mean, because people tend to go for big boxes. They can fit a lot of stuff in. Everybody talks about being able to fit more in, but clearly it can be a problem. I mean, I think we have far more uh, capacity in our panniers than we have capacity on the bike to handle that weight. Generally, it can be that way. Um, I mean, we use a, a roll bag on the back of the bike. And if you've got the large Ortlieb roll bag, it's quite amazing how much stuff you can put in there. But you've got to really be careful about where you put your weight and how high and far back. Uh, you, you want your weight as far forward as possible to distribute the weight onto the front wheel because the rear wheel is grossly overloaded to start with. And if you look at a picture of a bike with a passenger on it, you'll find that the passenger is sitting on the axle or sometimes on some bikes even behind the axle. That does not do good things for the handling. And, and that brings us into what we're actually talking about today. And, and the reason we had to start with weight is because that's everything for the bike. We're, we're going to talk about subframes themselves. And all that weight or most of that weight, as you're saying, including your passenger and you that you're putting on your motorcycle is sitting squarely on the subframe. So, Grant, maybe you can give an explanation of what is a subframe. Okay, to start with, the frame is the part that connects the swing arm to the front wheel. 
That's the main frame. And then off the back of that, the subframe is also known as the rear subframe. And that's the part that holds the saddlebags, you, that's where the seat is and all the rest of it. So it's a secondary frame to the main frame. So how did they get to building a subframe? Has it always been like this? Mm, think of a bicycle. The original motorcycles were bicycle frames with a engine stuck somewhere. And they, I mean, when I say somewhere, I say that deliberately because they put them on the front, in front of the handlebars, in the space where we're used to. They put them on the back. They put them up on top of and between you and the handlebars. It was just amazing where they put them. And then we decided, well, okay, that we needed to carry some more gear. And then they started adding little extensions onto the back. And eventually we ended up with this idea that you've got to tie the front steering head to the swing arm as directly as possible. And if you look on a sports bike, there's a giant aluminum beam going directly from the steering head to the swing arm. And that's the frame and everything just kind of hangs off of that. But then you still need to have a place to sit. So they put a piece of metal out the back and that's the part that you sit on. That's the subframe. And I guess it really comes from suspension, doesn't it? I mean, the original ones were sort of a diamond-shaped frame where the, the frame was this great big thing that went completely from the, from the back axle to the steering head, whereas now that's not the case. we got the swing arm in there. Yeah, the swing arm does most of, or the swing arm pivot to the steering head is the main connection. And now with modern systems and the single monoshock, the rear subframe doesn't exist like it used to in, in the same way. All in, in the old days, the rear subframe was where the suspension was connected. And today it's not. So now why is it that it, anyone searches on the internet or, or if you've owned a particular bike that's bad for it, why is it the subframes break? Subframes are just simply overloaded. They are designed to carry a certain amount of weight. They are, the manufacturer assumes that you buy the bike and use it as they designed it to be used and they marketed it. And very often people take a, have a different idea of what this bike can do and they start overloading it and carrying too much gear and ignoring the gross vehicle weight rating and um, they run into problems and frame, subframes start breaking. There Which was is a Suzuki brought out a number of years ago that had a aluminum rear subframe uh, it was a sports bike. I can't remember which model. And they broke on a, at a great rate. And they eventually replaced all of them with steel for subframes because the aluminum just wasn't strong enough. But they used aluminum because it was lighter. That's one of the disadvantages of aluminum, isn't it? It doesn't flex like steel. It does, it's not so forgiving. Um, it's, it's very rigid. And if it moves, it's going to end up breaking. It depends on how you make it. Aluminum can be very uh, surprisingly flexible. Take a look at an airplane wing. An airplane wing flexes enormously, but it's very carefully engineered, very carefully designed and using the right materials. But subframes on a bike, if it's engineered right, in theory, an aluminum frame should be as good as a steel subframe. However, in practice, given the uh, restriction of cost, because a really well-engineered and exotic aluminum subframe is going to be extraordinarily expensive, um, steel still works out as being overall a better marketable, sellable product. Mm, that's a very good point about the aluminum. Yeah, if you, if you were to take an aluminum channel, you can twist it. It'll sort of twist endlessly, you know, longitudinally. But if you, if you try and bend it at all, that's where it becomes rigid. And uh, mm -hmm. so, yeah, it, it depends on, on how they're manufacturing them. And is there, is there a norm for adventure bikes, aluminum or steel? Steel is pretty much the norm. There's a few bikes out there. The uh, BMW G650 X Challenge, for instance, has an aluminum rear subframe. 
the catch is that that bike was not really designed for adventure biking, but people say, ooh, this is a cool adventure bike, and then they load a ton of luggage on it, and then the subframe breaks. So BMW actually changed the aluminum subframe to a steel one later on. As in that one or as in, in the other example you gave, there are times when there's sort of maybe, I, I don't know, is this a manufacturing defect, but certainly they haven't, um, they haven't built the frame strong enough and they're prone to breakage. Yeah. Uh, the R80GS that Susan and I rode around the world, the rear subframe on that was notorious for breaking. I remember, I remember reading one story about a guy riding his GS through uh, Africa, and I think he stopped six times to get the rear subframe rewelded and the racks. And I was a BMW dealer way back in the early 70s. And it was common for the BMW racks at the time to break in a couple of spots. And just about everybody re had to have them re-welded because as soon as you overloaded a little bit with a bunch of camping gear and passenger and all the rest of it, they broke. That was just the way it was. Um, so when it came time for us to head off around the world, I said to myself, I do not want to be re-welding this thing all the time. So I just built an entire new rear subframe because I knew the original was going to break a lot. You just took the old one off, used it as a pattern and, and built a new one? Yep. It's hanging on the wall. The old one. The old one, yeah. So the new one was made out of a thicker material. It was made out of a larger diameter material and it was triangulated and braced so that it's super strong. I... Well, I have to confess, I over-engineered it. I did more than I needed to now that I look at it and say, you know, in the entire time, our trip around the world, fully loaded, ton of luggage and all the rest of it, it never budged. It never moved. The bolts didn't even loosen. It's, it's original, original, untouched. It's just bulletproof, which means that I probably over-engineered it. So, but on the other hand, I'd rather over-engineer it and carry a couple of extra pounds weight that way than have it break and break and break and break. Some of them have, um, some of the subframes and certain bikes have problems with uh, bolts, like for instance, the KLR 650. Yep, they're notorious for it. The bolt that they come with is not up to the job and there's uh, replacement bolts available. It's, it's a very common uh, thing for a Kawasaki to replace the bolts that hold the subframe on at the top. And changing the bolts, you've got to be really careful. People say, well, I'll just put a stronger bolt in if it breaks. Yes. That's You can do that, but you got to be careful what you mean by stronger. Um, in SAE, you can change from a standard grade 3 bolt, which is rubbish, to a grade 5, which is good. And you can go to a grade 8, and a grade 8 is theoretically stronger than a grade 5. It's got higher tensile strength, but there's a catch. It's more brittle. The grade 5 will bend. The grade 8 will break. So if you've got a... And the, and the biggest difference in strength is in shear strength. If you've got a grade five, for instance, it will bend in shear. And I think of way uh, your rear subframe is bolted on, the load is shear on the bolt. Okay, so you don't want a bolt that has a poor shear strength or is brittle. You want a bolt that might bend instead of break. So often those a grade five is better for that job. And, and that would be for those times, not necessarily for the load, but for because it's a motorcycle and you're going along, you might go into a, a ditch or something and have the suspension bottom out, and that's all of a sudden an excessive load. Take your your the weight that you're carrying, and it goes up exponentially. Yeah, absolutely. And you think of uh, a really bad gravel road. Um, I can think of a road I was on in Africa on in, uh, the Caprivi Strip where the corrugations were so bad that it was literally had to get the bike up to about 60 miles an hour in order to smooth it out and start riding on the tops of the bumps. Otherwise, it was just 
pounding us to death. And we're not talking about building, like building up your subframe so that you can handle more weight and go beyond the, the gross vehicle weight. What we're talking about is once you start to push those weights up into the maximums, there's certain vehicles, certain motorcycles that have particular problems. And that's why we're talking about the bolts or the brake. Yeah. Um, and some bikes just break. The 1150 GS was known to break the subframe as well. Um, and the bike literally just about fell in half. Um, and a lot of subframes break and crack because people overload them. And you need to brace them. They need to be done appropriately. You need to use stronger bolts, better bolts. Um, you need something that's, that's flexible and yet still strong. If you can, for bolts, go to a bigger bolt rather than just go to a harder bolt. Because harder bolts, as I said, are more likely to actually crack. Uh, but a bigger bolt in a more malleable grade, like grade five or in metric, um, a class 8.8 is really good. I use 8.8 bolts everywhere on my bike. Um, that seems to be the best way to go. So you've got to be careful how you do it and what it is you're trying to do. The main thing that I looked at on subframes is, is it well triangulated? In other words, from the back of the subframe down towards somewhere near the rider foot peg, is it well supported and triangulated there so that you get so you are distributing the weight instead of running it at a very high load rating um, with less triangulation, less support. So if someone's starting off right now and they are concerned, and they should be, they should be wondering if they're going to load their bike up and use it as an adventure bike, the first thing they want to do is figure out what they're dealing with as far as a subframe. So I guess, I, I guess where you'd start first is probably the forums. Yeah, start checking around. Does this bike have a reputation for breaking subframes? And when and why does it break? Um, some bikes are just fine if you keep within the weight. And in fact, I, say, I would say most bikes today, if you don't exceed the weight ratings, are fine with the standard setup. But as soon as you start overloading it, and too often adventure bikes are overloaded, too up, full load of luggage, and too much luggage. And yeah, they're going to run into subframe problems, potentially. Uh, tire problems, suspension problems. People forget about getting the better springs. They just crank up the preload to maximum and say, yeah, that's good. It'll be fine. Well, no, not necessarily. That almost certainly not. Yeah, there's a whole, I mean, I mean, we could really go on and on about, about weight for the bike. And, you know, if we weren't just talking about subframes today, because... I think that's what happens is uh, the bikes come, and we've talked about this before, I think on other shows, but the bikes come set up for a, a certain capacity and it's usually just the rider, isn't it? Well, the optimal is just a single rider. Secondary is put a passenger on and third is start carrying some more luggage. And then fourth is carry too much luggage, which too many adventure riders do. And um, yeah, if you're going to go on a big trip, yeah, you'll probably have too much stuff, but you really got to work hard at limiting how much stuff. Uh, for the solo riders out there, I love to say, look at the two upriders and see how much stuff they've got and then look at your bike and how much stuff have you got. If they can do it with that little luggage, then you can too. You don't need all that stuff that you've got. So checking the forums to begin with, find, it, find out if your bike has problems that a lot of people run into because, I mean, let's face it, there's not that many models out there. It's um, a bunch of other people have ridden the bike already and chances are people are reporting it and, and co have come up with solutions. And the, the common things would be what? The, what common solutions do they have? Common solutions? Add some bracing. That's the first thing you're going to do. Figure out, find out where it breaks and then add some bracing. But uh, it's always remember that it's a chain. 
the first thing that breaks is the first thing you brace. Okay, so you've now fixed that. What's the next point it's going to break at? And this is what happened to guys with GSs going through Africa. They would fix the first fail point, and then there would be another one, and they'd fix that, and then they'd fix the next one, and they'd fix the next one. And eventually, the thing was giant mechano set of bits of metal welded on all over the place. So you've really got to think about the whole thing as a system and think about supporting it and triangulating it properly from the beginning, not just keep patching it where it breaks. And you do have to keep going back to your GVWR, your gross vehicle weight rating, because it, you can't ignore that just because you've beefed something up. Putting in a, a heavier spring to carry your heavier load and, and reinforcing your subframe doesn't make the bike able to handle more weight. Because like you said, you're going to go to your next thing while well, you're going to break your next weak link on the chain. Yep. And you're going to overload your tires too. So you got to start thinking about tires next. And then your mainframe and your suspension, like the bolt that your shock is bolted to the bike with. Gee, you know, I've seen those things break. The actual shock bolt breaks. The S650 BMW was known for that. Um, they'd actually bend and then break the shock bolt. Okay, now what do you do? Okay, that bike's overloaded if you're bending the shock bolt. So it's always a chain. There's always something else that's going to break. So what about luggage racks? Because the luggage racks often will fasten to the subframe and then have a support going down somewhere lower on the bike. Yeah, the a well-designed, well-engineered subframe is actually going to increase the strength of the rear subframe. That's a large part of its job is to distribute that weight and help support the subframe if it's done properly. And usually today, most, most racks are pretty good that way. Is there anything we should be looking for in a rack? Um, lateral rigidity would be a big one. Um, a lot of rack systems have a crossbar going from left side to right side, so the two racks are tied together. If it doesn't have that, that's not a good thing. You, you definitely want to have that cross-connecting brace to help keep things tied together. I like to triangulate it. How do you do that? Uh, the back, well, think of looking at the bike from the back, from the bottom left of the left rack to the top right of the right rack, and then make an X brace. Mm. You're just modifying it yourself. If you have yeah. welding capabilities and metalwork uh, abilities, yep. yeah. If, if you're really carrying a big load, um, then it's a good idea. I did an X-brace on the back of my own bike way back in 1987. And the amount of side-to-side -side movement on that thing is minimal, like quarter of an inch sideways wobble. Wow. It's very, very, very stiff. And, and some of the other considerations we have is once you add a rack on and then you add boxes on, and if your bike goes down, now you've added a lot of leverage to that subframe. So again, not what the subframe was designed for. No, they're not designed to be crashed on. Uh, there are some saddlebags out there that are designed to actually rip off when you crash. And the idea of that is that if the saddlebag is attached firmly and solidly, you'll bend the subframe, you'll bend the, the racks, you'll bend everything. Whereas when the saddlebag comes off, all of a sudden there's no load on any of that. And it's just a slide down the road uh, load. And that's not likely to bend it. Whereas a well-attached saddlebag, yep, you could bend the whole thing. And that's expensive and difficult to deal with on the road. Now, Grant, you'd mentioned to me before about how some motorcycles, I guess probably all motorcycles, have certain ratings for top boxes, etc. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, the common rating that I see for most saddlebags today is 10 kilos or 22 pounds for the contents of each box. That's pretty standard. All the BMWs pretty much, um, KTM and a few others, pretty much the similar weight. 
the BMW top box, for instance, is 22 pounds, 10 kilos. The saddlebags are 10 kilos, 22 pounds. Uh, that's that's a very common rating. But sometimes you get a surprise. I noticed a spec on a uh, FJR Yamaha the other day. The rear rack total weight you're allowed to put on it is seven pounds, three kilos. <laughs> seven pounds. That's my seven lunch. Pounds. Yeah, exactly. There's not much there. Um, now, so, so hang thing, on. So this is this is another thing that we have to consider here because we talked about the gross vehicle weight and we're we're considering what our payload is. Well, this is another calculation they put in this. They're saying that that you have to watch the weight on your rear rack. So where else would the payload go? <laughs> it's bizarre, isn't it though? I mean, to say yeah. seven pounds on, on the tail of it. Now, obviously they're talking about the tail. I think the KLR has something similar. I think it's 12 pounds on the back of a KLR, which is not yeah. very much, but, but that's how the, that's how the subframe is designed. That's what it's designed for. Now there are reasons for those numbers and right at the top of it all is warranty and legal reasons. If you overload it, if you put in 12 pounds and it breaks, they can say, well, you overloaded it, no warranty, you're out of luck. Um, that's an important one. The other one that's really important that people don't realize and don't think about for top boxes and rear racks generally is when you put weight at the back there, you get th going up to around 90 miles an hour and silly speeds like that, which they run into a lot in Europe because the Autobahn, no speed limit. It's amazing how badly that affects the bike. Um, so they want to keep the minimum weight on the top box. And if you get into a big wind or any side winds, gusty winds, a big top box, heavily loaded, wow, it really shakes the bike around. It's amazing the difference it makes. It's not a good bike for weight. You're, you're changing the engineering, aren't you, so much. With anything we start to add on, the more we add on, the more we basically screw up what the engineers did when they designed the bike. Yeah, and take a look at, at a bike from the side and, and look at the back, put a top box on it, and then grab a hand and shake that top box. What does it do to the front end? Not nice. Yeah, it's sort <laughs> it's of very, it sort of whips, doesn't it? Oh, yeah, it's all over the place. It doesn't take a lot. You get a big gust of wind, hit that top box, and it does very bad things. A top box with a passenger is less bad than a top box with no passenger because with no passenger, you've got a big airspace between you and the top box. And that wind will come around behind you and whip the top box and do bad things. So you talked about the seven pounds on the FJR and I mentioned the 12 pounds on the KLR. Yeah. Now, is there a way that we can increase the load carrying capacity of that, uh, the back part of the subframe or the subframe itself by adding things like luggage racks and the luggage racks being the ones that have the extra support that runs down and fastens to the frame, thereby adding a gusset in really? Yes, you can certainly increase the capacity as far as breaking the subframe is concerned, but what you're not doing is improving the handling of the bike at speed or in high winds. So would you say on something like that, like the FJR or, or the KLR for that matter, that you really shouldn't be exceeding those weights by very much? Let's put it this way. From a legal point of view, absolutely not. Hmm. Okay. It's anytime you increase or add weight to the back end is not going to do good things for the handling. It is not recommended. You want to keep that weight down and you really want to work hard at putting weight forward. I like uh, bags that are hanging from the gas tank and what I call knee pockets, something sitting in front of your legs. Get some weight up there. Put uh, tools up front. I've got my tools in the uh, bags on the front of the crash bars on my GSA and that really moves a lot of weight forward. Um, I think all you can really say is as little weight as far back as possible and centralize and forward is your 
main goal and down forward and down for the weight is your mantra for loading a bike. And of course, overall less is more. Overall less is more. Absolutely. The less you carry, the better. And always find with travelers that the people say, I, I would say the, the number one thing we hear from travelers about luggage is we just sent another box of stuff we thought we needed home. You'd almost okay. be you'd almost be better off to start with less and f- plan on buying it or sourcing it on the way because if if what you're saying is true and I know it is then you're not going to need to get it. No, I think one of the things that we tend to do in the Western world is we set off on an expedition. We have to have everything. We have to have everything perfect. It has to be the best, the lightest, the most compact, the coolest, and of course we have to have all of it, which means we've got too much stuff. What we forget is that we're on a road and roads exist for people to go from one town to another town. And guess what? In those towns, there are people who live there and guess what? They can get what they need to live. So we can buy it too. In other words, if you're heading off, don't do like one couple I know who headed off with two riding suits, one winter suit and one summer suit, head off with the thought that when I get someplace where it's cold, there will be people there and they will probably have sweaters available to, for sale and I can buy a sweater and I can be warm. And when I leave the place where it's cold and I get to someplace where it's hot, I can probably get rid of it or throw it away or give it away. I don't need to carry this huge bulky sweater around the world when I'm only going to be in the cold areas for a short time because I want to be where it's nice and warm most of the time. And the upside is you have a bike that handles so much better that there's less chance of breakdown, the less wear and tear on your tires and all your other components. And you know the biggest thing? It's less stuff to pack every day. Mm, One thing that drives me nuts is every morning you got to repack all of that stuff. And every single thing you got to pick up, you got to put it in the right spot. If it, it doesn't fit there, it has to fit there. It doesn't go there. Oh, that won't work there because that... It just doesn't fit, and it's a real pain in the neck to pack. You want your saddlebags not full. If you've got three inches of clearance at the top of your saddlebags because they're not full, that means, gee, I can buy some food, and I can buy some lunch, and I can toss some stuff in there, and it's easy, and I can just keep traveling. I don't have to fight it and deal with it. it makes life a lot easier. Well, Grant, great having you on. Thanks very much. And, and I'm okay. going to see you in, in August. Yes. At, at Ken West. That's right. Yeah. Is, is Ken West filling up? It's doing pretty well, yeah. Okay, so we're, just while we're talking about this, I was going to give a little plug for the fact that we're going to be there. Um, where does somebody go to find out more about Ken West, where we're going to be recording Raw live? Go to horizonsunlimited.com slash events, and you'll see all the events that are coming up listed. And we're heading off to Ontario next week ourselves, and after that on to... UK for the Hub UK event and the weekend after that, Ireland. So we've got three events in a row coming up for us. So just to sum things up here for the subframe conversation, when you're looking at your bike capacity, you really need to look at your, your gross vehicle weight, the maximum the bike can hold. Figure out what the bike weighs wet and with your accessories and don't chintz with your, your, your adding the weight in for your accessories. And then whatever's left over is your payload capacity. And of course, like we had talked about, you want to keep that down as low as possible. It's worthwhile grabbing a pen and paper, finding the specs on your bike, doing a little math and figure out exactly what you can safely carry on your bike as far as weight goes. Well, Grant, great having you on. Thanks very much. 
Okay, thanks, Jim. We'll see you again. That was Grant Johnson, co-founder of Horizons Unlimited. Well, I'm not sure if I'm going to do it justice here, but you can uh, you hear that sound. That is the new 2016 Aerostitch catalog, and I just got it. This is one impressive beast. I put some photos of it on our Facebook page. You can go by and check it out there if you haven't seen it already. But man, oh man, this is a thick catalog with a lot in here. It's um, certainly something that uh, is worthwhile getting. So you can get it too. There's two ways you can get it. One, you could download it online by visiting their website, www.aerostitch.com forward slash ARR. And of course, you know that forward slash ARR is going to get you something. You're going to get 10% off your first purchase or if you're a repeat customer, free shipping anywhere in the U.S. And I think you have to pay five or ten bucks or something for the catalog if you're getting it outright. But um, otherwise, uh, the money, I guess on your next purchase, they give you that money back for it. But definitely worthwhile getting. And of course, you know about the Ride More Guarantee. You can um, try any Aerostitch one-piece R3 or Roadcrafter riding suit for one month. And if you're not riding more than you did before you received it, send it back, full refund, no questions asked. Check it out at aerostitch.com forward slash ARR. Giant Loop Moto, the exclusive North American importer for Rally Raid products and the Honda CB500 kits, parts, and accessories. Um, remember that uh, we did that um, a couple episodes, well, a number of episodes ago now. We, we covered the CB500. Very cool. And a lot of people are going that way for a mid-weight adventure bike. But anyway, I want to point out something to you here. Um, of course, when you, you go by their website, um, giantloopmoto.com, and um, the promo code for it is ARR. That's going to get you free shipping in the U.S. And, and anytime you're dealing with them or any of the companies that we talk about here, let them know you heard them here on this show. And that way they know the show is working for them. And it just keeps the whole thing going and keeps us being able to produce the show for you. Drop by their website, Giant Loop Moto, and check out in the dry bag section. There, there's a, a couple of dry bags there. The Rogue dry bag caught my eye. It's 17 liters and it's meant to fasten to the other bags they have, including the, the standard Giant Loop bag, the, the horseshoe style one that goes over the back. But it's the type of thing you can use on any bike. And I was just thinking, you know, I've gotten a conversation with someone the other day about extra storage space. Is this kind of bag that's made for motorcycling that you want? And one of the reasons is if you, as soon as you look at it, you'll know right off. You'll see the, the loops that are sewn into it, the full length on it. It opens on both ends. Like it's got all the things you want for on your bike. Because the reason you want it to open at both ends is because when you strap it on your bike, if everything's at one end and you've got to access everything through the other end, it means you've got to dig through the entire thing, which means undoing the straps, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas this way you can reach into either end and grab at most of the stuff, if not all of it, without ever having to take it off the bike. Very cool. Giantloopmoto.com and let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Well, now for some gear talk, which is what we're going to be calling this segment when it's run from time to time. Gear talk is basically a gear review where we'll look at some new gear every now and then and only gear that we're truly interested in. It's got to be gear that I'm interested in as far as my riding style goes and, and it somehow piques our interest here at Adventure Rider Radio that we sort of want to delve into it deeper. For today's episode, we're going to be looking at something I've been trying lately, which is an Aerostitch riding suit, or at least jacket and pants. I've been trying a Darien jacket and AD1 pants. And um, 
I got to tell you right off the bat, uh, I'm impressed with both of them, but I'm going to run through this bit by bit. What I've done is I've actually got uh, Andy Goldfine on from Aerostitch. He's the guy who started it right at the very beginning and still owns it and runs it now. And I've asked him some questions about the the jacket and pants so that we can get sort of right from the horse's mouth uh, information about why they're made in a particular way, why he's made some certain choices, etc. And also a little bit of a history behind the jacket and where it came from. Because it's interesting, this isn't just a jacket that some company has decided to make because the market is demanding it or the market, the, the adventure market is getting popular and they've decided, oh, well, let's produce something and throw it to the market. This was actually before the market was developed, that's when the Darien was brought out, before there was an adventure market, which is obviously huge now and, and great fun. So we're going to kick it off with speaking with Andy Goldfine from Aerostitch. Andy, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Thank you for the opportunity to be with you today. Yeah, it's great to finally get you on here, Andy. Um, let's start off by talking about the Roadcrafter suit, which I think is your oldest suit. Um, that's what started the company. Tell us the story behind that. Well, the Roadcrafter is a one-piece coverall. Uh, similar to a snowmobile suit, but its intent and its design and features are quite different. Uh, what I wanted personally as a designer, uh, I wanted two things as an individual. One, I wanted to try my own business of some sort. Uh, I was I spent the, my 20s working for other people and sometimes was less than, less than, found it less, less, wasn't good, as good as I, I'd hoped it, my life would be. And that was a strong motivation. So I really didn't have a plan to uh, make motorcycle sportswear. I really had a plan to find something that I could do that would be my own business. When uh, uh, global free trade uh, started happening, the sewing industry in the United States left for lower cost parts of the world. So there was actually about a million people in the garment industry in the United States that were thrown out of work and people from all over the world came to auctions of garment factories in the United States and bought up the equipment and exported it to other countries to begin making clothing in those areas. Uh, I went to, I was at a couple of those auctions and there was one here in Duluth, actually the adjacent town of Superior, which uh, I was involved in organizing. And as part of the payment for the auction, I took or I was paid in sewing machines. I got 16 sewing machines for organizing this auction. A factory had about 100 sewing machines. And I rented a workspace for $400 a month. At that time, there was a lot of unemployment in this area. Uh, the unemployment was 22% that year in this area. Uh, it was a very hardship part of, a, part of the world uh, economically. And I, I was able to rent space for $400 a month, put the sewing machines in it, took a job that would leave most of my days free. Um, uh, in other words, an afternoon shift job and spent the mornings trying to figure out what to make with the sewing machines and how they worked. Um, so hang on, you, you, went to, you went to this auction thing. What were you doing before then? Were you in the sewing industry? The place that had the auction, I had worked there a, year, a couple years earlier for about six months. Uh, and uh, so I was called in to help the owners of this factory auction off the sewing equipment because um, I knew something about it and the owners didn't. So I helped organize this auction. To do that, I went to several other sewing factory auctions and, and contacted people in the auction business that were specializing in, uh, in industrial plant auctions and liquidations. I, 
and I and I made a deal. And and I was what what I was doing before this was I had a real estate license, and I was trying to sell real estate, and I wasn't very good at it. So you, when they're going to pay you in sewing machines, did you have an idea that yeah, you're going to run the sewing machines, or did you sort of look at them afterwards and go, well, I may as well fire these things up? Uh, no, I wanted to make something. I didn't. It just happened that it was sewing, um, but I was sure that I was going to try a self-employment, as as the word today is gig. I was going to try something that made something, and it just happened to be sewing machines. Luck plays a tremendous role in everyone's life, and I think it doesn't get enough credit for how important it is to to be lucky or to be in the right place at the right time, or unlucky too. Uh, circumstances are tremendously random in our lives, and uh, we have to be very grateful for the lucky ones that each of us have. Um, so I got very lucky. I got sewing machines, and then I looked at the types of activities that I was personally familiar with to try and figure out what to make with these sewing machines. This particular factory had been making uh, snowmobile suits and outerwear, uh, winter jackets and, and, and stuff like that. So the equipment was all designed for working with heavy heavy type garments. Uh, in the industrial sewing business, you have specialized equipment for whatever you want to make. If you're going to make t-shirts, that's one kind of sewing equipment. If you're going to make winter coats, that's a whole different kind of sewing equipment. So I had equipment that was intended to be used for making winter coats and snowmobile suits. You're in a, in a position, well, like if you, it's easy to look back on this in time, but I mean, you're in a position where sewing is making a mass exodus from the United States and your friends or people around you must have looked at you and said, Andy, what are you doing? Like, you know, the, the, the sewing industry is dead and here you're going to start a business in it. Uh, that, that did happen. And um, my father and his brother, my uncle, were in business together as lifelong business partners. And I spent some of my young years working for my father and uncle. And when I uh, told my uncle, who was my father's older brother, that I was going to make something with sewing machines, and I told him at that point, when I had this conversation, I'd already decided I was going to make these riding suits. Um, he said in a sort of W.C. Fields manner, Andy, pioneering is for Daniel Boone. And I, <laughs> at the time... I didn't understand how brilliant and right he was. It's It's been very challenging to be a pioneer. It's been rewarding. I'm very, very grateful for all the reward parts. Uh, and it's been a good life. I've never missed a meal. But now I understand how he and his wisdom would have uh, been skeptical of, of somebody who wanted to pioneer something, which I did. Well, well, so the Roadcrafter suit, you decided you were going to make this. Was there anything on the market like that? Did you see something and figure, okay, I'm going to knock this one off? No, there was nothing. Uh, nothing. That, at the time, uh, serious riders wore leather clothing, but there were very, very few of them. The average rider wore windbreakers, jeans, and, and sweatshirts, and uh, off-road riders often wore lineman's boots or lace-up hunting boots. Uh, Steve McQueen, an icon today, did a lot of riding in jeans and a sweatshirt because that's what was available. To, to, riding exploded in popularity when the post-war Japanese motorcycles started becoming available worldwide. They were so much higher quality. It, it, before the Japanese motorcycles came, if you wanted to uh, ride across country on a Harley or a BSA or a Norton or a, even, a, even a BMW, 
but especially on most of the British and, and Italian and, and uh, United States made bikes, if in 1960 or 58 or whenever like that, you, you, you could count on breaking down. Uh, the joke when I was starting riding was that Harley Davidsons don't leak oil, they mark their spot. Uh, and that joke, of course, is no longer has any relevancy because Harleys are excellent and Ducatis are excellent, BMWs, they all work. But before the Japanese came, they didn't work very well. As a matter of fact, they were so problematic to be useful as uh, you know everyday riding or long trips that you could count on being a mechanic and having them break down. And that limited how popular motorcycling was in all the wealthy and advanced parts of the world. So in America, there were only a few hundred thousand riders. Harley was a relatively small company all, all through the uh, 50s and, and up through the 60s. The Japanese nearly ran them out of business. People forget that the federal government had to had to do a tariff and bail out Harley, uh, help bail out Harley. Um, when I started riding, the little Japanese bikes were just coming and the big Japanese bikes hadn't started to come yet. But I encountered only bikes that were uh, super reliable. They had good headlights. They didn't leak oil. Many of them had electric starters. I, I, most riders, when they start riding, go through a sequence of bikes. The first bike is not the right bike. And by the second or third bike, they've sort of figured out what's the right bike for them if they're going to be lifelong riders. And I did that too. And on my way to figuring out what kind of bikes I liked, for a very brief period of time, I owned a BSA 441 Victor in between two little Hondas. And that bike was such a, a poor bike compared to the little Hondas I was useful as a riding tool uh, that I didn't own it very long. What happened with Aerostitch, where we came in, is that after bikes got good uh, as in terms of functionality, um, it took probably 10 or 15 years for the gear that riders wore to sort of catch up to that. Another well-known fellow named Craig Vetter figured out the, how to do the wind protection with the fairing before, the, before anybody else did and um, made a lot of money and had a very big successful company uh, manufacturing fairings. We did the same thing with the clothing piece. There, were, there was nobody else uh, making clothing that was as good as the modern bikes. If you're going to ride to work daily or if you're going to ride around the world as an adventure rider or go to a rally or coast to coast or do an endurance ride, you can't do it in jeans and a sweatshirt. And even leathers are heavy and they're not waterproof. They soak up a lot of water in the rain typically. So the kind of riding gear that was matched to the bikes before the Japanese revolutionized riding with their products, uh, the kind of riding gear was not good enough for modern motorcycles that came in the in the late 60s. And when we started in the early 80s, there was a lot of demand. A lot of people were ready for better, better riding gear. And that's what we tried to do. The Darien jacket, as you know, I'm riding with a Darien jacket now. How did the Darien jacket come about? Well, uh, when we started making the one-piece suits, for, and my intent was to commute on them, and it didn't take long for us to see that people were using the one-piece suits for uh, recreational riding, which included long trips. And the, because the suit wasn't designed specifically for that purpose, although I and thousands of other people have ridden all over the world in these one-piece suits on long trips, it wasn't its, its design. And the daring came about because I wanted to help my business be sustainable. And, and I knew I needed a product that actually met the requirements of what people were using their motorcycles for. In other words, just because we created that suit 
riders didn't change and start riding to work. They they still wanted to go on adventure rides and rallies and, and recreational rides. And so I thought we needed a, a jacket and pant outfit that was designed for that purpose. So that's where the daring came from. As soon as you pick up the daring jacket, one of the first things you notice, at least I did, was no liner. Right. It's the only uh, high-tech riding gear available in anywhere in the world with no liner. When I looked at um, the most technical clothing for other activities like uh, mountaineering and offshore sailing and um, anywhere there was a, a, a high-tech garment made by a, a company like North Face or uh, any of those type of outerwear companies, um, the best and most technical ones were online. And there's a lot of advantages to that. One advantage is that it's, it flows air better in hot conditions. So it's a cooler wearing garment. Another is it's lighter. Another is, is um, if you do have to do a field repair, it's because it's only a single layer, you can work with it easier to repair it. it that doesn't come up very often, but it is a factor. Mainly it's cooler and lighter weight, uh, but it does present difficulties with the manufacturing. It's harder to make a good single layer design because the customer can see the inside of the garment. So that both sides of the garment have to look good. You can't hide anything in between the lining and the outer. So it's a technical, technically a more of a challenge to make them that way. You also have to figure out how to hang pockets and hang armor inside of it. And with a lined garment, you're able to, to hang, put pockets in the lining to hang the armor. So it's a tougher way to go, but it's a functionally superior kind of a jacket in extreme use, I think. The AD1 pants, um, what are they focused on as far as a rider? It's a general purpose pant. I'd like to tell a little story about the pants that we started with. When we created the Darien jacket, at the time there was no internet and the thought leaders in motorcycling were the editors and still to this day to some extent are the editors and writers of the published uh, special interest motorcycle magazines. And at the time, most of those guys were working and living in Southern California. Uh, Cycle World, Cycle Guide, Cycle, Motorcyclist, Rider. There was even more titles than that. Lots of guys were, and women, were building great magazines. There was sort of a golden age of of cycle magazines at the time. And uh, in order to help develop the Aerostitch business, I had to go out there and, and tell my story to some of these magazine editors in person. Some of them weren't immediately open to the idea of wearing a modified snowmobile suit coverall instead of leathers. And after a, a few years later, when, when the Darien was created, I wanted to make another trip to Southern California to, to show off the features and the design ideas in the Darien. And I, my plan had been to use the bottom half of a two-piece roadcrafter suit, which is a lined design, and just put those on underneath a Darien jacket and ride out to California and meet with magazine editors and, and talk about the wonderfulness of the Darien. But about a week or two before I was scheduled to go to California, I tried this combination out and I didn't like it. I said, oh, I got to have a pair of pants that is unlined like the Darien jacket is unlined. So we took a pattern off of a pair of 501 Levi's and threw together a, a pair of unlined riding pants to go underneath my Darien. They didn't have a name or they didn't have a, a, we didn't have a plan to put them in our catalog or anything. So I went out to California 
met with magazine editors and talked about the Darien jacket. And on the way home, at the, I was there at the same time as a, a BMW rally called the Oktoberfest. And I, I, I enjoyed going to rallies very much. And I thought I would stop and spend the night at the Oktoberfest one night. I was carrying a tent and a sleeping bag. And um, if you ever go to a motorcycle rally, what happens at many of them is people hang around the registration. As you enter the rally, you're supposed to park your bike, walk over to a card table in a tent somewhere and pay some money. And uh, so I, I found the San Diego rally, put my bike on the stand and walked over to the uh, registration and paid my money. And there was 20 or 30 people sort of standing around watching who would show up to the rally. These were rally regulars for this particular rally. And I had the funniest experience to me anyway, that I had this jacket that no one in the world had ever seen that I'd worked very hard on the Darien jacket. And I thought people would come over and say, Hey, where'd you get that jacket? What kind of a jacket is that? That didn't happen. What happened was two or three or four people came over during the as I was registering, and then later at the rally, and say, hey, where'd you get those pants? <laughs> so, so by the time I got back home, I knew that we had to make uh, the pants. And the 81 pants are a derivative design of the Darien pant. The 81s differ from the Darien's in their cut. Uh, they have a slightly greater bend at the knee. They have a slightly lower rise waistband, which is even lower in the front than the back, uh, and a slightly different uh, pocket arrangement. So they're like, uh, the 81s are sort of like Darien Pan 2.0. And we made those a year or two after the Darien's with these additional refinements. Um, they're still cut like uh, Levi's uh, basic jean. And I, I want to circle back before I stop uh, monologuing. The original design of uh, of the riveted pocket jean was uh, Levi's, and the people who came later and added embellishments to the jeans, in some ways, the marketing premise was if you buy the Gloria Vanderbilt designer jeans or the Calvin Klein, whatever designer jean, you'll get a better product. But the best product usually is the original. I'm, I've been buying... Uh, my own pants are Levi's jeans, and I've been buying them since I was a kid. They wear out. I bought another pair, and I would be very unhappy if, if Levi's decided to somehow substantially change the design of the basic jeans that I've been buying and wearing for 40 or 50 years now. And the Darien and 81 pants are, are compared to the other kinds of pants on the market, are very basic, and I consider them quite pure from a design perspective. Um, and they are the originals of this kind of a pant. Is there anything else about any uh, features or anything that you have that or that you do for all any of your clothing or all your clothing for that matter that you want to talk about? Well, let's stay with the Darien and 81 pants, uh, and my comments will apply to both of those. There are some uh, features, um, some details that I think matter a lot. Uh, the, at the bottom of the leg of these pants and of our riding suits, there's a huge uh, rectangular-shaped tab made out of uh, 3M Scotchlight that allows you to make the lower end the right size to, so it doesn't take a lot of wind or flap around. So if you adjust the big tab on the outside of each leg that's made of the Scotchlight Reflective and you start riding along at night if your bike doesn't have saddlebags because of how headlights on cars work where they angle downward a few degrees, the car will pick up your 
ankle reflective tabs long distance before they pick up any, that you're, there's even a motorcycle there because they're down low by the road. The uh, pockets on the thighs of the Darien and 81s had a lot of thought into them. There's a double seat. There's really not much of a pocket. There's one pocket in the back that if you want to have a handkerchief or something, but because you're sitting on, on your glutes on most motorcycles, you really don't want anything in the back pocket. So there's a, a, and I could go on about the waistband and the belt loops and the kind of belt we use. And there's tons of little details, nuances, but it all adds up to a, a pant that works for a lot of different kinds of riding purposes and that looks nice because it's very plain uh, and that fits well and that's durable. So there's, there really is a lot of nuance in, in each one of these, these Aerosuch products, I think. Andy, it was great meeting you, and I enjoyed speaking with you. Jim, thank you for this opportunity to talk to your audience and to you. It was great meeting you as well. And that was Andy Goldfine, founder and owner of Aerostitch. Stick around in just a minute. I'm going to give you my impressions of the Darien jacket and the 81 pants. Puget Sound Safety Off-Road provides world-class motorcycle training to new and avid motorcyclists. They've been doing it since 1996. Now, you know PSSOR if you've been listening to the show because you hear Brett Tax on here doing our rider skills. Why do we have Brett on here? Because he is a pro. And that's certainly the product that they put out at PSSOR. They've got a couple of different things, uh, well, probably a bunch of different things you'd be interested in, but a couple of specific for us adventure motorcyclists. They've got the ADV training camps and the ADV training exhibitions and tours. Now, they're both slightly different, but they're what you need as an adventure motorcyclist because the thing is, you want to get out there and you want to get some additional training. doesn't matter what your skill level is. You can always learn more. And I always say that's the thing that I love about motorcycling. The adventure training camps run May, June, and July, and um, the training expedition tours are July and August. Really, I think the difference is the training camps, you sort of stay in one spot and you learn your skills. The expeditions, uh, expedition slash tours they have on their website uh, that run in July and August. They're more of you're learning while you're riding. So both of them, awesome ways to learn. And you can learn from Brett or people that work with Brett um, at that skill level. PSSOR.com. And of course, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. So now, in case you haven't seen it, the uh, the Darien jacket, in a lot of ways, it's your typical adventure motorcycle jacket. It's made of Gore-Tex. It's waterproof as far as Gore-Tex goes. It's long enough to cover your back and has some pockets in it. But its simplicity is the one thing that I really like. The design is, I know some people like flashy logos and things like that. I'm not one for that. I feel like I should be paid to wear something with a whole ton of logos on it. But the jacket definitely looks the part for adventure riders, and the fit is really nice. I mean, really nice. Uh, it has no liner, which threw me for a loop, and, and I already talked to um, Andy about that. But now that I've been riding it for a while, I find that it vents quite well, as Andy was saying. It, it's got the zippers under the pit, and then it's got the under the armpits, and then it's got the zipper across the back. And that simple combination seems to allow enough air to flow through. I'm not one for a whole bunch of zippers if I can avoid it. I do like ventilation, obviously, but um, too many zippers, zippers just give you opportunities for leaks. And if you you ride in the rain long enough, you know that almost any jacket, I think any jacket is going to leak really. But um, the more zippers you have up there in the front of your arms, 
the more places you have for water to leak in. So it's better if you can get by with fewer ones, which we seem to be able to do with this jacket. It seems to be working so far um, very well for that. I haven't been out in any really, really hot uh, weather, but I've been out in some pretty warm uh, 22 degrees Celsius, which is, uh, I don't know, 75 Fahrenheit, something like that. The jacket itself is made really well. It feels heavy duty. When I pull it out of the box, I could immediately feel the weight of the material. The, the jacket overall doesn't feel super heavy, but the material itself is, is very robust. And a couple of things I really like on the jacket so far. One, the collar. Now, in my mind, no adventure jacket is complete without a collar. The short collars in the average street jacket, uh, I mean, they're fine for the street, but they're just not up to the task for adventure riding, at least not for me. So for riding dirt roads and rough areas and all weather conditions, I mean, pouring rain and cold and, and warm, you need a collar. And now some of the nice things about this collar is that when you don't want to use it, it folds down really nice. It seems to fold in the middle. I'm not sure if there's a line on it or what, but it's got a real nice, easy fold over as if it's meant to be down. And it's got these removable magnetic strips or snaps rather at the end. So the snaps, the magnetic snaps hold it down when you're riding. And when it's down, it just feels like a jacket with a small collar. You just don't feel it at all. But as soon as it starts to get cold or rainy, you can flip that collar up and it's got one Velcro strip that goes across the front and holds the collar in place. And it is really, really nice. It's tall enough that it just keeps the wind and the rain out. And, and I absolutely love that. I've really enjoyed this collar. I think any collar, <laughs> a good collar, is worth its weight in gold when you're out in the, the cold and wet. And this one certainly is up to the task. So far, it's been absolutely great. Another feature that scores high points with me is the zippered cuffs. Right around the cuffs, it has the typical Velcro pieces that many manufacturers use to tighten the cuff area. But what they have in addition on this Darien jacket is they've got a short zipper that you undo. So when you're taking the jacket on and off, you just use the zipper. You don't have to keep ripping the Velcro off and readjusting the cuff each time. To me, that's very valuable. The jacket is is simple, it's effective, and very durable. The uh, other thing that I like about it is the reflective material on it. Uh, I, Andy told me it was called Scotch Light, I think is what he had said. It's the reflective nature of it is incredible. Like it really, it almost gathers light. It looks like you're, you're turning on a light is what it looks like. And my jacket's black. And on the back, it's got a, a fairly big strip, two or three inches uh, high, and the full width across my shoulders of reflective material. When you're behind that, and I've tried it, it takes very little light, like from a flashlight, to light that up like you would think it was a, it was a, a neon sign on your back. So great for visibility. The jacket came with shoulder pads, elbow pads, and back pads. They call it TF3 padding. Seems really good. It's certainly more padding than what I've had in other jackets. The jacket fits really nice. I, I got to say that. It just fits like it was made for me. Now, I'm also using the 81 pants, and Andy mentioned about the 81 pants. We talked about that a little bit. The things that I like about the 81 pants, first and foremost, the fit, they fit beautiful. There was a break-in period, of course, because they're made of heavy material. Um, but even before the break-in period, you could tell right off the bat that they fit like they were made for me. Um, it's got reflective patches down on the bottom, which are really obvious uh, when you're on the bike. And uh, you can see it with, like I said, even the same as the jacket with a flashlight. You can see it reflect with the car lights, the headlights. It really reflects back. The other thing I like about them is the zipper. The zipper comes all the way up. You can actually zip them in half, but it's got a little spot where it stops, where you kind of zip up and you feel that natural little bump where the, where the zipper stops. There's no liner in the pants, so taking them on and off is dead easy. I'm finding it's, it's a, it's a non-issue to just even throw them on for a five-minute ride down the road, which is a huge asset when it comes to safety gear because 
you want to be able to take it on and off easy so that um, you're not uh, reluctant to wear it, put it that way. And so far, the pants have been great. They come with the, uh, the knee pads in them as well, and there's, there's room for the pads um, in the hips. One of the other things I forgot to mention that I like about this is that all the padding is put in with Velcro, which means it's infinitely adjustable. And uh, if you've ever had a pair of pants that the Velcro or that the padding doesn't sit right on your knee or something on the pants, it's just enough to drive you nuts. And also you don't think it's very safe. Whereas this, I can move the padding around, which I've done to get that perfect fit. So all the pads are in just the spots that I want and it's very comfortable. So that's the Darien jacket and the AD1 pants. And uh, I'm going to keep riding with those and I'm going to let you know what I find as I go. Um, they're, they're broken in now, and now I'm going to try and wear them out. This episode is brought to you in part by Max BMW Motorcycles, serving adventure riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories available online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can sign up for their e-rider newsletter, too. It's free. That's maxbmw.com. And Best Rest Products, home of Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire and Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. You know, whether you're on the road or off the road, you'll need a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system and will inflate a flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA, and get this, it comes with a lifetime warranty. It's the pump we use here at Adventure Rider Radio. Visit them at CyclePump.com. That's CyclePump.com. Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles, tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding. Green Chili Adventure Gear is also the exclusive USA distributor for Outback MotorTech, a Canadian company that specializes in high-quality protection for motorcycles. Visit them at www.greenchiliadv.com, greenchiliadv.com. Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. I want to give a special thanks to our co-producer, Elizabeth Martin. Now remember, we have all the links in our show notes to this show and all of our shows. Drop by our website, www.adventureriderradio.com and check out the show notes for this episode and all our episodes. And of course, you can download all the episodes for free. Please drop by our Facebook page and like our page if you haven't already. And if you like what we're doing and you'd like to keep the show coming to you free, consider dropping by our website, www.adventureriderradio.com and clicking on the donation button, throwing a little donation in. Anything more than $10 is going to get you a gift fired in the mail back at you from us, our way of saying thank you very much. My name's Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Now it's time to get out there and ride your bike. See you next week. I'm Natasha Martin, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio.